0: Hey, podcast listeners. Michael Shelley here. Uh, today is a encore presentation. It's an interview I did with Bones Howe, October twentieth, two thousand and seven. I think this was live. I can't even remember. I'm pretty sure it was live. What can I tell you about Bones Howe? I mean, he created the California. Wrecking Crew sound in a lot of ways. So many of the records associated with that time, he worked on in some way from Jan and Dean to the Mamas and the Papas to the Fifth Dimension to uh, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. The association, all those records really have something in common, and I really do think it's Bones Howe. Uh, you know, he's not a performer. He's an engineer, producer, and so maybe he's not as dynamic as a guest, as some of the guests I have that are performers. But uh, this is so interesting. At 2007, uh, where has the time gone? I mean, wow, I'm just, my mind is going nuts. Almost 10 years ago, right? He's still with us, though. He's in his 80s. Uh, the records are fantastic. And somebody emailed me and said, will you rerun this uh, this Bones Howe interview? And I said, yeah, I've, I haven't myself listened to it in, you know, since then, so... Let's hear it. Uh, Interesting guy. Great guests. As a sideline, we tried to do a part two. This one we did tape in advance, and the machine froze, and it uh, it disappeared, and that was the the day that I started using two machines whenever possible to tape a conversation. So that never aired, and uh, it's too bad because we, we don't talk about the later half of his career, work with Tom Waits, etc., etc., etc. cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. Anyways, uh, you want to email me, it's S at wfmu.org, and uh, that's it. Here is my conversation with the great Bones Howe. Yeah, there's the fifth dimension. Sounding particularly good in headphones, I'd like to add, and that record was produced by Bones Howe, and Bones joins us on the telephone. Bones, welcome to WFMU.
1: Thank you very much, Michael. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. i got to say, even though I had to drive my wife to the airport at about 3.30 in the morning, I'm still doing great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not a pleasant drive. I've done that drive a couple of times. Yeah. I, I,
0: well, I think I should interview you, though, although we can, okay. we can talk about my wife. Uh, she's fantastic.
1: I'm happy to hear that.
0: (laughs) She's she's really great. Uh, You were born in Minneapolis, but grew up in Florida. Went to high school in Florida.
1: Minneapolis, Minnesota.
0: Yeah, where it's cold. Uh, When did you get interested in music?
1: Um, I think I was probably, well, it was it was when I was just tall enough to wind up a Victrola phonograph, Hmm. and um, you know that when I there was only radio when I was growing up. Uh, I grew up in the 30s and 40s, and there was no television. And so all of our entertainment came into the house either by radio or by uh, the phonograph, which was a wind-up phonograph of Victrola that you wound up with a crank and, uh, and you had steel or cactus needles. And, and when I was uh, finally tall enough that I could reach up and put the needle in the groove, um, that's really, I think, when my first interest in, in music um Surfaced, I guess.
0: They were they really cactus needles. I never heard about
1: them. They were cactus needles. Yeah, they were quieter. They didn't they didn't make as much uh, scratchy sound.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Uh, you started to play the drums when?
1: In high school. Um, I was, uh, it was around 1948. I graduated high school in '51. Uh, some friends of mine were. Um, were in a band, and uh, they were older than I was uh, uh, and I just there was a bebop band um, John Edmondson had a little quintet, and, and uh, that was a bebop band, but they did play for dances, and then there was this this six piece band that played for dances in high school all all high school students and the band was called the Solid Six, <laughs> but I was more interested in the bebop band, and i I always said, you know someday i'm going to play with this band and um two friends of mine and myself started a uh, started a trio piano trio and I, that's kind of I, I just learned by listening and I was self-taught and I learned by listening and and I did play with John Edmondson and uh, and I did play with a solid six and when I went off to uh, college the Korean War was raging and uh, and I didn't want to carry a rifle so uh, I went to engineering school I was always interested in radio and and uh, and obviously in, in music and phonographs and that sort of thing, electronics so I, I went to Georgia Tech to study electronics and communications
0: And how'd you get from there out to Los Angeles?
1: Well, what happened was I was uh, I arrived at, at, uh, at college and got rushed by a few fraternities and one night there was a jam session and there wasn't anybody sitting in the drums so I sat down and started playing and there was some guy there that had a band and Came over to me and said, Who are you? And I said, Well, you know, I'm, my name is, my real name is Dayton, like the city on Ohio. My name is Dayton now, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a student at Georgia Tech. And he said, Well, do you have any drums? And I said, No, my drums are at home. And he said, Well, how quick did you get them? In those days, the quickest way you could get something was by Railway Express. So I had my mom put them on the Railway Express, and I can have them by next week. He said, Well, if you can have them by Saturday night, I've got a job for you. And that's how it all began. And I, I played, uh, you know, by the time I was a senior in college, I was playing six nights a week with various bands and and stuff. And in the process of that, uh, I met a drummer from California named Shelley Mann, who was playing with a Stan Kenton band. And he said to me, uh, you know, Fort Fort McPherson had um, in Atlanta had a lot of had a great jazz band and a dance band there. And he said, well, you must be at Fort McPherson in the army. And I said, no. I'm going to school. He said, Where are you going to school? I said, Georgia Tech. He said, What are you studying? He said, Electronics and Communications. And he looked at me for a minute and he said, A musician studying electronics. He said, You know what you should do? You should come to California and get into recording because there aren't any engineers in recording studios that know what a rhythm section is supposed to sound like. <laughs> and I graduated, you know, and drove to California.
0: Wow, because Shelly made the drums told you with it.
1: my drums and, and my clothes, and that was it, you know.
0: And you got a job pretty quickly?
1: Um, it took me about a month. I got a job at an independent recording studio called Radio Recorders on, Sa- on Santa Monica Boulevard. Actually, the building still exists. The studio's still there. And, um, I started as an apprentice. Uh, they, um, they couldn't believe that a guy with an engineering degree would go to work at a recording studio as an apprentice, but that's what I wanted to do. And in those days, there were a lot of jazz recordings made in that studio. Pacific Jazz recorded there, and, and, um, you know there were some some uh New York labels that recorded and RCA did most of their recording there so there was Shorty Rogers and Norman Granz did uh, a lot of his Verve recordings there so there were there was a lot of jazz being being uh recorded in those studios they were really wonderful studios and uh it was mono in those days there was no stereo wow um I was there for the beginnings of stereo and helped to uh, design a network that uh the one time I used my engineering education, I helped to design a network so we could put a phantom center between two tracks. But uh, other than that, it was all about the music for me. It was always about the music.
0: Do you remember the first uh, session that you got to actually engineer? Yes, I do. What was that?
1: Dave Pell, who was a tenor saxophone player in the Les Browns Band, and then and then um, had settled in North Hollywood, uh, uh, which is near Lawson, near, near Hollywood. You know, it's over in the Valley. Um, had, had seen me working in the studios as a uh, recordist and asked me if I was uh, felt I was ready to do uh, a session as a, as a mixer, and I said, yeah, I think so. And he well, he was involved with a new label um, called Tops Records, which sold their product in the thrifty drugstores for $1.99, and he right. said, well, I'm going to record a Dixieland band, so I want you to be the engineer, and it took him about Two hours of arguing with the management to get them to agree to let me do it, and finally they just said, Well, look, if it all goes wrong, it's your fault, not ours. Um, so I recorded, uh, there was a, a bass player named Morty Corb, and there was just you know a bunch of studio guys that lived in the Los Angeles area that had been Dixieland players, and we did this wonderful little Dixieland record. Um, and uh, that was my first, uh, and that, of course, you know, really set things loose because from then on, people knew I was mixing, and I did, uh, you know, I recorded Bud, Bud Shank and, and, you know, uh, Marty Page's deck. You know, I just recorded. Uh, there was a label called Mode Records that had been an, uh, an offshoot of Bethlehem and New York, Bethlehem Records in New York. And I did a whole series of those with a wonderful guy named Red Clyde who who had moved to California and was recording all the West Coast guys. You know, it just kind of went on from there. I, I, uh, I started doing sessions with Nessui Erdogan from Atlantic Records, and I did the... Um, the first two Ornette Coleman albums on Atlantic, and then um, I did a, an album with Nesui uh, with uh, Red Mitchell and Harold Land, and uh, you know, by that time I was working very closely with Nessui. He sent me the album, and uh, without saying anything, he just sent me the album and I the album came in the mail and I opened it up and I looked at it and I turned it over and I looked on the back and it said, "Produced by Nesui Idingen and Bones How. Oh. And it was the first time I'd had a production credit. I'd had my name on the back of albums as an engineer, but never as a producer. And that was sort of the, you know, the moment when I said, "Gee, maybe I can do this too."
0: Hmm. I was going to ask you, how did you get into producing? How did you get from these heavy, heavy jazz sessions to these heavy, heavy pop record sessions? Well, what
1: happened was, uh, you know, in the '60s, sort of going into the middle '60s, you know when surf was rising, jazz was falling, you know. The, out here in the West Coast, it was beginning to disappear, you know. Shorty Rogers couldn't get a gig, you know. It was the, all that stuff that had been going on at the Lighthouse and, and all up and down Hollywood Boulevard, Jazz City, and The Hague, and all these other places just began to disappear, and guys began to take jobs at the Tonight Show Band and whatever they could get work, you know. it was The whole thing was beginning to change, and of course... The Beatles stuck the final dagger in all of that, and the whole music business changed from what was pop when I got into it to what became pop from the '60s onward. And uh, but in that
0: time, from the you know when you first got there to the very early '60s, the pre-Beatle '60s, you were recording all kinds of people walking through that door.
1: Oh, absolutely! I was recording everything. You know, I was Frank recording, Sinatra, um, Armed Forces Radio Service transcriptions. You know, with these little seven-piece bands that were doing dance music. I was recording anything, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh, Pipe Tobacco, anything that came through the door. It, people said to me, oh, you were so lucky you got to work on those. I said, you know what? I got up and went to work every day, and when I got there, I didn't know what I was going to do until I got there.
0: That's fascinating, yeah. You
1: know, it's, it's a job. You do it five days a week or six days a week, and... uh and you know, if you go show up every day, so you're going to get thrown into some things. And you know, I worked with Elvis. I, you know, I did all kinds of different. I did a lot of pop music, but I was my real love was jazz. But what happened was, the music in L.A. began to turn into the R and B. You know, the first pop music was sort of, uh, you know, what was called rock tinged R and B. You know, get out of that man and rattle those pots and pans. You know, all that stuff was happening then. So shake rattle and roll. You know, that kind of R and B. And of course, a lot of the guys that had played jazz were now, particularly the black guys, were playing this this, R, this new R&B. And uh, I started playing. I, you know, I started going to those sessions, and uh, and then people would say, "Well, you know, would you do this session for me?" And so I would engineer for them. I was still gigging in those days. You know, I played with a little band. Uh, you know, at the El Monte Legion Stadium. You know, I did. I was doing everything I could do to you know to keep moving. <laughs> You know, I was meeting myself coming in and out the door.
0: Tell me about uh, working with Sinatra.
1: Well, um, I worked with. I moved to United Recording. Um, I spent five years at Radio, and then I and then I moved over to United Recording. Bill Putnam, who had who had Universal recorders in Chicago, had built a studio on Sunset Boulevard uh, called United Recording. Later, he bought Western and became the famous United and Western, where all those big hits were cut in the '60s. And Bill was, had always done Frank's sessions at Universal Recording in Chicago. And when he moved out here, Frank had started a label called Reprise and was doing his sessions at United. And uh, one night, Bill had a terrible accident. It was raining. He went outside. He slipped and fell and hit his head on the sidewalk. And, and I, he had scheduled me to work with him on, uh, as, a, as his recordist. And, he, and it, we, you know, we carried him up and put him up in his, in his office and he, and he just said to Frank look Bones will do this, this sessions he's a really good mixer and, and he'll so that was the first time I worked with Frank and um it was you know it was uh Neil Hefty was a producer it was a real you know he was Philly a volatile. was the arranger and Frank was great you yeah. know he, his his thing was he would give the band he would usually show up an hour late to give the band a chance to run all the charts down to find where the you know if there were bad notes and let the arranger you know figure the kinks out that whatever they were so he was real loose in the studio. For him, it was like you know being on stage, and he would fool around, with, you know, kid it around with the musicians. And, and But when it came time to record, he was dead serious. Um, and he'd give you four or five takes, and he'd listen back and say, if that isn't it, I don't know what it is, and that would be it. And you'd go on to the next song. So And remember, we were recording uh, simultaneous. Uh, I think by those days, we were recording in three tracks, so there was no... Uh, we you know the mi- mixes were very very simple. You could play a mix back into the studio off a of three track.
0: Mm. Uh, so a volatile guy, but you you really just saw a professional
1: at work. Yeah, I liked him a lot. And of course, when the fifth, uh, when I was producing the Fifth Dimension, and they were reco- were uh, pr- uh, opening for Frank at Caesar's Palace, I saw a lot of him. Mm. He was—he oh, was a good guy. I liked him a lot. He was a guy who was friends with the musicians and hated the management. That was his, because uh, <laughs> he started on the bottom. You know, he—he he was on the road with the Darcy Band. You know, he paid his right. dues long before. He was one a guy that kind of grew up in a recording studio. He grew up on the road with bands.
0: All right. First time you saw Elvis Presley was when?
1: 1957, when Elvis came to uh, California to record the first time uh I was working still working as a recordist uh sometimes as a mixer but mostly as a recordist and there was an um, uh a mixer named Thorn Nogar who became very close with Elvis, became the guy that Elvis wanted to do all his sessions um, was his mixer and uh I I was working with thorny and as his recordist and Elvis uh came into came into the studio with his guys you know they had that stretch limo that they dro- drove out from from memphis and uh and we did uh one song at a time you know the the uh Aberbach brothers had this uh, hill and range music and they published all of elvis's songs and they showed up at the studio with demos and i'd play the demos out in the studio and elvis would uh say yay or nay and then he would learn the song right off the demo i mean he, there was not he came to the studio just ready to Whatever was good he liked and, and wanted to record, he recorded, and whatever he didn't like got thrown in the trash.
0: Yeah, amazing way to work.
1: And uh, did you? Well, I always said he was the first self-produced rock star, hmm. <clears throat> because he chose the songs, um, he worked out the arrangements with the guys, he chose what the good takes were, um, and, you know, the guys from RCA that came and sat in the booth were nice guys and all that, but everything pretty much... Uh, bent to whatever elvis wanted to do
0: that's interesting yeah it's too bad he didn't focus on that all a little bit more on that end of things
1: well he just um he was he liked to participate in the in the um in the creation part but then when it came to performing and what he really loved to do was perform and so when it came to the when the band started playing i mean he, he forgot all about that he just wanted to sing and you know, have a good time.
0: Yeah, uh, you, 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 a lot of big hits, a lot of big records started coming out of L.A. Right about that time. Uh, some of your early hits with the Routers, we just heard from them, Out of Limits, uh, the Marquettes, and all the Jan and Dean records. And when I say all the Jan and Dean records, they were making three or four records a year.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Jan was Jan was one of those guys. His life was Jan's life was you know being in the studio, and he he you know he would come come by my house on saturday afternoon and say i you know i want to remix i've been listening all week i want to remix that you know come down to the studio and we'll remix i mean it was like there weren't the days of the week were all the same for him and i was married and had a family by then you know i'd like to have my weekends to detox you know get away from the studio a little bit but he um he was you No, know, let's go let's go let's do this let's do that um you know, I'd work with him until the middle of the night, and and we'd and I'd and then I'd go to the cutting room, and I'd cut a forty-five uh, uh, acetate, uh, you know, reference for him, and we'd drive down to drive up to Hollywood Boulevard, and he'd go into uh, KFWB, and Roger Christian would play it on the radio, so we could hear it on the radio. I mean, the days were so completely
2: different then. And
0: then yeah, right now. that's crazy. Uh, that's the beginning of the time when you're starting to work with the guys who are known as the Wrecking Crew and songwriters who end up playing a big part in lots of different groups that you work with uh at, at that time you're working with i guess gary lewis folks like that and you start to produce the the group called the turtles
1: yeah what happened was there was a group called the crossfires that were performing down in redondo beach um at a little club down there and they were a surf band and um two guys that had been promotion guys for a&m records uh, said they were going to start their own label and they found this group and they and they came to me and said um Herb Alpert said that you're going to be the next big producer. Uh, told us that you're going to be the next big producer. I'd worked with Herb a few times in in Hollywood, so if you'd be interested in producing this group, we would uh, we would love for you to do that. Uh, take a shot at it. And so I said, well, I got to hear them first. Went down to uh, South Bay with them and the club and. Uh, these guys were were rehearsing. It was in the afternoon. They were rehearsing, and they played some songs that they had written, and they played a couple of surf songs, and then they played this version of of, of Bob Dylan's tune it Ain't Me, Babe," which Dylan had only recorded just you know voice and and acoustic guitar and and mouth harp. So he um, so they played this tune, and I went, "That's the song that's a hit." Uh, yeah, I'll do this that's because that's a song that's a hit, and. Um,
0: and it was so we went
1: back you know we did a session in the studio and we did that that tune and um you know I'd had so many years in the studio by then and really had my own ideas about what I would do if it, if I were producing and so um we got a, I got a top ten record the first time out.
0: Yeah, and it's a great record. Did someone say, listen... This,
1: this. By the way, they were called the Crossfires when... <laughs> they were called the Crossfires when I met them. They changed their name to the Turtles right before they put the record It up. seems like
0: they also changed to a folk rock band, or...
1: Well, that was really what it was. That was the beginning of folk rock. I mean, Dylan was just starting to go electric. Uh, you know, there were all these other things that the were birds. happening then that were, were beginning... Music was, again, beginning to change. Was you know, that something love and spoonful which was right. a good time i mean you know there was this whole
0: was that something the band wanted or the record company wanted
1: The record company wanted a hit
0: <laughs> they didn't care what they didn't it was care that, right
1: they wanted a hit and, do and the, they got one
0: there's a little bit of controversy does the turtles play on all of like the you baby album they,
1: um they did they played all on all the things that i did with them they 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 played on all the tracks oh. yeah okay um they you know happy to, the band had changed by the time they got to happy together and um and so that that band was a little bit more sophisticated i should say a little bit less uh you know street level they were uh, there were some better, really better uh, musicians in the band by then, So, and I think the record shows it. Hmm.
0: Uh, you start, you're working with the Mamas and the Papas, back back to engineering, but right. some giant hits, 1966 through well, 68. Well, Lou
1: and I got together, you know, I met Lou when he and Herb Alpert were hanging around the halls of radio recorders, and, and, and Herbie had his horn in a brown paper bag. Um, I had engineered a couple of sessions for Herb, uh, for uh, Dante and the Evergreens. He was arranging... Uh, Herb was doing anything he could do in those days. And Herb and Lou had, had done uh, Jan and Ernie. I mean, they'd done all these, you know, these lightweight, uh, you know, sort of recording acts that had been on the charts but not really not done anything big. And and Lou, you know, during the period that I was making all those jazz records, Lou, whenever he would work in the studio, said, well, don't give me bones because he's the jazz guy. <laughs> so, but one one... Uh, when I got over to United and made a few pop recordings, he called me up one day and he said, "I'm going to do an Everly Brothers record and I want you to do it with me." And the song was called "Don't Ask Me to Be Friends," and uh, we did. We recorded in the studio, and of course, the you know the two black guys got in a fight in the studio. But we got the record made. And um,
0: well, who got in a fight?
1: Uh, well, the the, the Everlys, you know, uh, you know they they weren't really on good terms with one another in those days. I mean, Phil. Still seemed to be, you know, okay, but you know they just weren't on really good terms, and they got into a battle about who was going to sing what in the bridge, and you know, mm-hmm. apparently. But Lou got the session done, which was the important thing. He was still working for Nevin's Kirshner Music then, which became Screen Gems, and um, and this was really the first record that he had produced as a solo producer. And he called me up when, uh, he took the he took the uh, in those days you you took an acetate ref forty five ref home called me up after played the ref and he said, that's a perfect mix. He said, I want you to do my sessions. And when he started Dunhill Records, he, I, by then I had become an independent engineer. And he called me up and I said, and said, I want you to do all the Dunhill sessions. I want you to be my engineer. Well, that's how it all kind of began. I just, um, I was working for Lou all the time. And uh, we were recording, a, we recorded um, Eve of Destruction with McGuire. And then McGuire was going to do an album, and one night we we're we we're uh, you know all assembling in the studio to do a couple of tracks for McGuire's album, and these four scruffy kids show up with a guitar, and and Barry says, uh, this is you know this is John Phillips, he he wrote uh, you know California Dream, and and uh, you should hear these guys sing; they sing really well. And so Lou and I went in the back room and and listened to him sing and i mean they were amazing they, and uh it was you know what became the mamas and papas and 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 uh just you know the four the four kids and a guitar and uh Lou said, what do you think and i and i said if you don't take them i will <laughs> and uh he you know he got them away from Capitol records so they were ended up on dunhill and of course the rest is rock history the bathtub album was a huge was a huge album and yeah. uh and off they went. I did uh, that album, the next album, which I call the Window album. <clears throat> the, I go by the photographs on the front. The first right. one's a bathtub album. Second is the Window album, and I started the third album with Lou, um, which is the p- Swimming Pool record. And then, um, and then I decided in 1967 that I was going to uh, spend my. By then, I'd had a few records on the charts, and I decided that I was going to just stop engineering for other people, and I was just going to do production from that point on, and uh, so I, did, I never finished that record, though somebody else finished it.
0: Just real quickly, tell me a little bit about, I mean, that's the beginning of what of the whole Wrecking Crew sound. One thing that, that sort of strikes me talking to you is the, the early style of recording where you've got two or maybe three tracks, and then you move to the 60s style of recording where it's still a limited number of tracks, but there's, it's a little more technologically advanced. It sounds better, and, and it's a, such a perfect time. Those 60s records have such a great sound to them because later the 70s come in and everyone's recording to 24 and 48 tracks, and it really just changed the way sonically everything was done. And, you know, I, I just get the the feeling that during a Mama's the Papa session, there, there's no let's hit the bass drum for a half hour. And you Oh, know, no,
1: I never did that. I mean, it took me... Uh, you know, some guy from a heavy metal band once called me up later, much later, when I was working at uh, Columbia Pictures, called me up uh, and said, "You know, I I got to know how you got that drum sound." And he named a record. And I said, "The way you get that drum sound is that you're in Studio Three at Western <laughs> Recorders, and you've got two guitars, a, a piano, uh, an electronic keyboard." bass and drums all in the room together and i said and then you it's just where you put the microphones and the mics are all open and it's where you put the microphones i said you know that sound is the sound that you get from not recording everything individually mm. that's that's the sound you get from having people play together in the studio but the, which is really what i did best because i came out of jazz records you know in jazz records you you as Zoot Sims once beautifully described the way you make a jazz record. He said, you turn on your mic, you turn on your tape, and you turn on your tape, you turn on your mic, and you get what you get, and that's it. And that's really <laughs> the way you make a jazz record. You get what you get, and that's it.
0: Well, the beautiful thing about these 60s pop records the recorded in Los Angeles is you have that very live under part, and then there's some sweetening or some vocal doubling or something that happens on top of it that make it Really interesting, and and uh, you know, ready for repeat listening, and really just poppy, and emphasize the the most you know the hooks.
1: Well, the the basic thing about this, Michael, is that in those days you made all your decision your music decisions in the studio because you didn't have you didn't have the opportunity to uh, you know you didn't have the luxury of endless tracks to you know to be confused for. Three years trying to figure out what you're going to have on your record. You made the decisions right then and there, because you only had a limited number of tracks. I mean, even with 16 or 24, you had a limited number of tracks. And you had to pretty much make your decisions right then and there, and especially with three-track. So you overdubs, and uh, you know, the uh, Wendy was on four-track, and, and uh, I made the decisions about all those sounds that are on that record I made before I did, you know, that last overdub. So, so that's a record. You're done, and that's the record. And you either love it or you hate it. But, but, but in, but in most cases, they work out if you if you plan ahead. Yeah. And that's because I came out of the days when you did everything live.
0: Uh, you talked about you made the decision to just produce records, and the associations one of the the groups you, you got a hold of right away. And like you said, Windy, a number one hit, uh, "Never My Love," also a big hit for them. What I mean, what, a strange group, you know. Everybody sort of sings, and just a what? What did you do? you looked at them and said, "Okay, here's what we're going to do." It just yep. That's
1: when they asked me to come, when they asked me to meet with them, I met with them and I said, "Okay, look, you you guys will will agree on the material we're going to record. Um, I'll bring you songs, you bring me songs, and we'll decide. And if either one of us doesn't want to do it, then we won't do it. If uh, all of us love it and want to do it, we'll do it. And that's how we'll choose the material." I said, "The one thing that you guys aren't going to do is you're not going to play on the record because they'd made two <laughs> records by then and uh, two albums by then." Uh, on Cherish and and uh, Mary, along comes Mary. They had not played on those records, and then on the second record they made uh, Pangor's Golden Heebie-Jeebies or whatever it was called. They had played on that, and it was more or less self-produced, and it had been a terrible disappointment. So uh, I just said, these are the ground rules. Uh, the guys are going to play on it. Um, in the end, they wouldn't let me put the the uh, you know I call them the guys. They were they were what ended up being called the wrecking crew. Um, and they wouldn't put their names on the album because they didn't want their fans to think that they they hadn't played on the record. Mm. But but it didn't matter because it's pop music, you know. It goes out. Uh, I don't think anybody ever turns a record over, you know, uh, the, to look at the back of an album.
0: But uh, when you heard "Windy," did you go, "Okay, this it is was a, a,
1: it"? Was it was a demo that I heard. Uh, they they gave me a, a roll of demos by a gal named Ruth Ann Friedman who was a sort of a folk, uh, you know, guitar vocal. You know, folk artist, acoustic guitar. You know, she's one of those acoustic guitar singers, and uh, it was on a on a tape with um, with uh, I don't know, maybe ten other songs or twelve other songs. And I went through the reel of tape, and I came to this song, and it was in, as I remember, it was. In, I mean, there's been some some discussion about this lately, but my memory t- it tells me, and as you can tell, I you know, my memory is pretty clear. I remember it as being in three-four time. Here, who's Tripping down the streets of the city, you know, in 3 4 hmm. and I said, Wow, if we could put that in 4 4 that would be great. And that's what we did gong, 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 All gong. Right. You know, it's a, so, um,
0: the rest is history,
1: the rest is uh rock and roll history. Uh, the Associ- Never my love, you know, the, the wonderful thing about Never My Love is Clark Burroughs, who was and this guy didn't get enough credit for what he did in, in music. Clark Burroughs, who was the lead singer for the High Lows, I'd met him when I'd recorded the High Lows, a wonderful vocal group had done an arrangement for them on one of their albums. And, and, um, they said, you know, who does good vocal arrangements is Clark bros. I said, I didn't know he was doing, you know, pop music. He said, Oh yeah, you know, he's living out in the Valley and he got married and blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I'd love to talk to him. So I talked to him. I said, look, if you know how to, how to voice these guys so that we can get some really hip harmonies out of them, I'd love for you to do this record. So he did. And when we, and when the Adresis played me, never my love, um, I said to him, you know, uh, this is a wonderful ballad, but you know, I don't want to put a guitar solo in the middle of it. I don't know put a saxophone solo, and every record's got a guitar solo, saxophone. <laughs> you know, uh, what I want to put is a vocal solo. I want you to write, you know, a, a vocal part that they can sing that's got no words. That's you know, a ba- cantata, ba- ba- yeah. ba- da- da, you know that. And yeah. he wrote that piece, and it, to, you know, I still get shivers when I hear that. I mean, and they sang the pants off it. They, I mean, that, that piece, I mean, they sang on all their records, and that piece really shows you that those guys, when you could get them all lined up in the same direction, <laughs> could really sing.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, they churned down MacArthur Park, right?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. <clears throat> and you, Jimmy and I had done the Magic Garden album together with the Fifth Dimension. And then, you know, we'd become good friends. And Jimmy, and, and we were finishing the Magic Garden album, but Jimmy kept saying to me, I got an idea for the association. I want to do a tune for the I got an idea for a cantata. They're going to sing this cantata. I and mean, of course, you know, Remember My Love had come out, and by then everybody, you know, they would say, well, I can really sing. And we, so I took Jimmy over to meet with him. We were in Studio 3 at Western. He sat down at the piano, which is what he always did. And he sang this, Six tunes in a row, which was going to be one side of an LP, which was in those days an innovation. You'd, nobody did one whole side of an LP. It was I mean, we got into that in the '70s, but we didn't really. It wasn't really happening in the '60s, particularly that early in the '60s. And so um, he he sang this whole thing, and there were there were you know. Um, one part of it had where's the playground susie was one of the tunes that he recorded with somebody else and it was one of the tunes that was in this was one of the forerunners of where's the playground but it ended with macarthur park Um, and the the guys said um, you know we want to talk about this jimmy would you go out and wait in the hall so jim went out in the hall and we got into this massive discussion and it ended up with them saying any two guys in the association can write a better piece of music than that (laughs) and and so they turned it down and (laughs) i was furious you know i tried to quit they wouldn't let me i just said you know you guys are making a huge mistake but anyway they did um we went on and did another i did another album with them and which wasn't you know it's called birthday it wasn't particularly a great album and they chose most of the songs and and it was just uh... it was a nightmare making the record because by then they'd had enough success that they were really uh... you know musical geniuses and and so uh... Uh, I was in New York doing vocals with the Fifth Dimension for the Stone Soul Picnic album and I went down Sunday night to get Billboard magazine and I opened Billboard magazine and MacArthur Park was num- with Richard Harris was number one and I called my lawyer and said you know, call Warner Brothers and tell them I quit. I'm not doing anything more with that group of guys. And that's how that ended.
0: That's great. Uh, the Fifth Dimension, Johnny Rivers started a record label. Somehow he found the Fifth Dimension and light bulb goes off over his head the Black Mamas and the Papas.
1: That's exactly right and calls me on the phone and says um i want you to engineer this record you know um i want to i want to cover uh uh,
0: uh, go where you want to go
1: yeah i want to i want to cover you you got to go where you want to go um and uh he said i've talked to lou and lou's not going to put it out as a single so i'm gonna I'm i'm gonna cover that record and i want it to sound just like that and i want you to get the same musicians that played on that and uh you know, and their their uh, arranger will help with the vocal arrangement. He'll he'll write it out and rehearse them. So, so I said, fine. So you know, Rivers and I went in the studio with them, and we recorded. You got to go where you want to go, and every and the record got on the chart, and everybody thought that uh, it was a Sloan Berry song. It was like a you know folk rock song, and everybody thought they were white. Hmm. Um, and then um, you know, so then the word leaked out, and the next record they put out. Uh, was uh, go where you want to go was was John Phillips. The next record was Another Day Another Heartache, which was a Sloan Berry song. But by then everybody knew that they were they were a black group and somehow black and folk rock didn't go together. So that record wasn't very oh. successful. And then uh, John started uh, working on an album with with jimmy webb who he just signed as a songwriter and one of the tunes was up up and away and so i went in with john and did the up up and away record which i had promised i would do with him so we did that in 1967 it's the only it was the last record i engineered for anybody else and and uh the record was successful yeah. and up up and away uh started getting played on WNEW in the uh, greatest city in the world where you are right now and uh, and they uh, you know it's it caught on there and then pretty soon people were covering it and, and uh, he was smart Rivers was smart he got singles out there and, and got heavy independent promotion got people out there to work the record and uh, so it got came to be um, it got to be you know the balloon it was called the balloon everybody called it the balloon record and and uh, it you know, it got into the top ten, and mm. and so they were launched. Uh, won
0: five Grammys, I believe, for you. Uh,
1: well, I, you know, I was just the, you know, I was just the engineer on that record, John. You know, but but when I when I'd gotten two number one records with the Association, and he was getting busy with his own career, he called me up and said, "If you want to produce the Fifth Dimension, I want you to do it." Um, and so I went in, and you know, we we started doing what we did. Um, It was, you know, we got going. Finally, uh, I found Stone Soul Picnic, Laura Nero's tune, and that really got them an R&B hit, which they always wanted. And I think from that point on, we really, uh, you know, we really got going.
0: Yeah, some amazing stuff. Uh, 1968, you do the comeback special with Elvis Presley. And we just heard a little less conversation, which has recently sort of been, it's everywhere now. It's an amazing track, that record. W- were those songs recorded in a studio for him to sing along with in the yeah, show? Were,
1: well, some of them he sang, uh, uh, everything that he sang on camera, he sang live. Um,
0: but the music was... was the tracks were pre-recorded. Okay. Was,
1: working in television, you work with not only, especially NBC, you work with not only uh, pre-recorded tracks, but you work with the uh... the nbc studio orchestra which we augmented with uh... with the wrecking crew you know rhythm section but uh... steve bender and i had, had started a company that we uh, that uh... we wanted to, to do both uh, television work and record work and we thought maybe uh... he thought maybe i could be a contribution to the music part if we did music uh... television special musical television specials um, and uh and and i would do records and and we would find artists together and so on uh, the real highlight of that was we got called to nbc to discuss doing a christmas television special with elvis and uh... the colonel had made a deal for elvis to do to sing twenty four christmas songs same Merry with everybody and that was <laughs> going to be it and uh... so we went out to talk to the executive producer bob finkel and we came back from that meeting, uh, and I said, driving back to Steve, I said, You know, it's a shame. He's never, he, Steve said he's never been seen on TV the way he really is, you know, the way he really sings. And I said, Well, you know, Steve, the way to do that is not to talk to the Colonel. The way to do that is to talk to Elvis, because he always produced his own records in the studio. And if we've got him fired up about doing that, he'll, he'll convince the Colonel. And that's exactly what happened. We managed to get a half-hour meeting with Elvis before the next meeting at NBC, and we pitched this idea to him. And I think the thing that really did it was Binder was so smart, he said, he knew that Elvis had gotten into karate, and he said, you know, I know a a choreographer who will choreograph... Uh, a, a karate scene with you doing karate moves and that was his eyes lit up and that was it and, <laughs> and so we did the special uh he was there in our office every day working on the script with the writers he um you know he was a trooper he loved the process he loved the process he loved to perform he just he was uh now we're talking 1968 the music had really changed and the beatles had been around and the rolling stones had been around and uh, if you look at the live section, this I tell everybody this, you know everybody, all oh, this was great. this uh, I said, take a look at that at the live section it's on it's on a dVD now it's it, it was on tape then it's on a dVD now. He reaches for that microphone, and his hand is shaking at the beginning of the first tune, and he sang eight bars, and he knew he had him hmm. and Steve, that's one of the and Steve, you know, started as a as a television director doing stars of jazz it was all live tv you didn't get a shot a second shot at anything you know you just called cameras and if you were right you were right and if you were wrong everybody knew it <laughs> so but he was he called that whole thing live he called i was in the booth he called all those cameras live and there's wonderful shots my favorite shot in that whole thing is he, he superimposed a uh, a shot of a girl's face looking up at Elvis, and then Elvis swings his arm around and he wiped the girl's face. It was just amazing, amazing stuff that happens live on, in that live sequence. Hmm. It's just, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we it's a really exciting. had great time doing
0: it. It's a really exciting thing to watch. We're sort of running out of time, and I have, like, we're only about halfway through your career. It's because <laughs> your, your career, so, so let me, a few quick things. Did you play drums on grassroots records? I did. Which ones
1: I played on? Where D- where were you when I needed you? Uh. Um, uh,
0: let's see. They just needed somebody, and
1: we- uh, what we- happened? No, no. What happened was I started playing on Sloan and Barry's demos because they they Hal, of course, was so busy they couldn't get him, and um, Jimmy Gordon had played on a few. But the, you know, the, everything was really kind of going. As you we're talking mid sixties now. Everybody was busy, and I had played on a few demos, and and they called me up and said. Uh, you know you got to plan these demo sessions for us and and they did them in the morning so, so and most of my work was usually in the afternoon in the evening so I said okay I'll plan a couple of them for you so you know we've got to get this stuff down on on tape so I can't remember we did we did a bunch of tunes um, and one of them was where were you when I needed you and it was just a demo and Phil sang on it so it uh, you know, they took it to the grassroots, they said, yeah, we're going to do the tune, they went in the studio to record it, and they could never get that same, it's really not a drum part, because it's not exactly perfect rhythm, it's more like a percussion part, you know, it's got a, a lot of, you know, I have this really deep tom-tom I was hitting, and all this other stuff, and, and uh, you know, they said well, they could never get the grassroots to to play that with that same feel, so... Um, they put the grassroots voices on the demo that I played on. That's how I got on there. I see. Yep. And then and that's what happened with the rest of them. I just you know, I went in the studio with Phil and and uh, Joe Osborne and you know, whoever the guitar players were and and Phil played guitar on most of them. I mean, usually there were just maybe 3 or 4 of us in the studio and I and I you know, I played on the demos and then they used um there's a song called Tip of My Tongue which uh, was a minor hit it was just a bunch of stuff um and then i played played on phil's album uh you know his uh phil sloan had a uh, for a while was known as p f sloan right did some great records. rock records so hal played on some of those and i played on some of them so i was working around the studio i finally i just got so busy that i had to made a decision, decision. i had to do one thing and it was decided that i would you know, I decided I was going to produce, and that was, and that kind of ended all of that. All right. But I'm shaking on, I'm shaking tambourine on, <laughs> uh, Never My Love, and I'm, you know, I'm on a lot of those records, someplace or other.
0: Uh Okay, we've got... I'm sorry, we got to, I just have another guest coming, so it's... Uh...
1: Good, well, I, I don't <laughs> want to take up the other guest's time at I all. wish
0: we could. Well, we may have to do this again, because you had quite a career after that. We didn't get to uh, Tom Waits and the Monkees and uh, Diana Ross, Phil Spector, a lot of other folks you've worked with and crossed paths with. I want to end this with maybe your biggest... You know, I was trying to think of a lot of times I'll introduce a guest. I'll say this guy had 13 number one hits or sold 500,000 records. And I think for you, it's the guy who maybe the audience name recognition is the least. East, but their ear recognition is the most. I would say of any guest I've had, I guarantee everyone listening has heard a song that you were there when was made. I mean, it's an amazing statistic.
1: Yeah, let me tell you one other thing that I really love. There's a there's a, a site on iTunes called 60s Pop and Aquarius is number one. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if it still is, but it was for a while. So I just, uh, you know, there are, there's some justice for getting old, you know.
0: <laughs> I'm going to play this record, and uh, it's an amazing, amazing record. The Fifth Dimension, Aquarius, Let the Sunshine. Actually, uh, Galt McDermott is going to be on the show in a few weeks. Tell oh, me how you how you found the song, how you put it all together. A little bit about the recording.
1: Well, the it's a, it's a it's a quick story. What happened was the Fifth were, were performing at the Americana Hotel. Uh, well, I don't can't remember what it's called now, but it's there was a hotel in, in New York called the Americana, and they used to. Uh, they used to perform in the showroom there all the time, and they were performing, and they, they called me up and said, we went to see this, this uh, show called Hair, and there's a great song in it for we could that would just be great for us um, called Aquarius, and we want to do it. And I said, well, okay, um, I'll go out and get the soundtrack album, but in the meantime, um, you know, I'm coming to New York to do vocals. We're working on a Stone Soul picnic. I'm coming to New York to do vocals with you guys, and when, when I get there, I'll go see the show. And I listened to the song, Aquarius, and I said, well, you know, it's not really a whole song. It's just sort of an introduction to the show. And, of course, when I saw the show, I realized that it just kind of goes from there into the show. And so I'm sitting there going, what am I going to tell them? You know, I don't know what I'm going to tell them. And then Rado comes, Ragni comes swinging across the audience, and they do this tune called The Flesh Failures. And the last Three bars of the flesh failures is, is let the sunshine in the sunshine the sunshine in you know, <laughs> and I said that's it. We put that we make it we that becomes the the last part. We make we make a medley and we just put that in the end. So I call the. Publisher, because it's a you know it's a Broadway show. You can't just do things like that to a Broadway show. Too. <laughs> so I called the publisher and I said, "Here's what I want to do. I want to do Aquarius, and then I want to segue into Let the Sun Shine In." And he said, "What's that?" And I said, "Well, it's the last three bars of the Flesh Failures." But you got to speak to you know Galt McDermott and you know the guys, Rado and Raggy, and ask them if if they mind if I just you know use that last three bars and I'll make a medley. They'll have the whole the whole thing, but it'll be actually two two of their songs. Um, and I said, okay, you know, I'll ask him. And so he called me back a couple of days later and he said, yeah, he says, you can do it. You know, he doesn't understand what you're going to do, but he says, he doesn't mind if you'll make a record with the fifth dimension. He thinks that's great. So I made the record and of course, you know, it's rock history. It was number one for eight weeks in a row. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and later somebody said to me, gee, you know, I talked, I talked to this guy, the guy was the publisher. That was a great idea he had to put those tunes together. (laughs) So everybody, you know, when it's when you have a hit record, everybody everybody thought of it, and uh, you know, he's welcome to it, uh, (laughs) for whatever.
0: But it was your idea to hook those two things together. Yes, it was. I mean, and did they play it all the way through, or was it? I mean, I worked the arrangement
1: out. You know, how how could he take credit for that? You know, I worked the whole thing out, figured out how we were going to do it, and Savar and I, you know, figured out how the vocal was going to go and. You know that's how it got done. But Bill Holman did the did the chart for the strings and horns, like he always did for me. Wonderful arranger whose arrangements are now in those jazz arrangements are now in the Smithsonian Institute.
0: And it's uh, Joe Osborne on the bass and How. Held... That's Joe uh, and
1: Hal. Yeah, that's the that's the guys Tedesco. You know, it's the all Tommy and Joe and Hal, the Wrecking Crew.
0: Well, it's a, it's a crazy record. Uh, Bones How, thank you for joining us today. Well, it has Michael, been a pleasure. Thank
1: you. It's been a lot of fun.
0: I feel like we just scratched the surface. We may have to do this again. Uh... I, okay, because there's more to talk about.
1: Okay, now you can do 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 de, do, do, <laughs> de, do do do
2: do do do
0: Thank you, Bones. Bye, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye.